This morning, if you're taking notes, I'd like you to write down effective prayer. Effective prayer. Can you stand with me? We're gonna, I want you to stand for the reading of the word this morning. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today because, well, friend, you're in church. Here we go. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5 and going to 14. It says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, listen to this next part. I, I, somebody needs to grab hold of this this morning that feels like you have to be a professional to pray. Okay, listen to this. Don't babble like the Gentiles. <laughs> Since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words. Can you just, can I just, just real quick, can you imagine how the Pharisees are like, they're hearing this, right? And these are the guys that literally stand in the synagogues and they're just like, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not a sinner like Pastor Stephen. <laughs> you're just, I'm sorry, you're right here, man. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like this other guy over here. Thank you that I'm holy and righteous, especially in light of his unrighteousness. And like these guys are waxing philosophically while they're praying. And then they hear Jesus saying, stop babbling like the Pharisees do. Because they basically are acting like Gentiles. Since they imagine, I love that, imagine, they think, they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Listen to this. Because your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our father in heaven. Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if, oh, here we go. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. I love how Jesus just ends that out with a nice gut punch there. Like, everything else was like, oh, that's nice. He's really making it easy on us. And then all of a sudden he says, BT dubs, if you don't forgive, yikes. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you didn't make prayer hard. I thank you that this is not a complicated formula. I thank you that you're not asking us to become poets. You're not asking us to become songwriters. You're just asking us to be sons and daughters. I thank you, Jesus, that you have already given us what we need to pray effectively. And Lord, I pray this morning that as the word of God comes forth, that we would be good hearers, but we would be better doers. We thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, I've always, you know, Pastor Jeff mentioned this last week, and, and I, I just felt like kind of repeating it a bit. I've always been really fascinated personally with the disciples, as they, as they saw Jesus work all kinds of miracles, as they saw the Lord do insane things, their, their question to him, their, 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 their plea to a certain degree was, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, if I'm quite honest, I, I, might, have, I might have thought to myself, Lord, can you maybe teach me the correct ratio between spit and mud, that if I put them together that they'll restore sight to the blind. 
right? Like, could you show me the correct methodology to ensure that when I call somebody out of a tomb, they actually come out? Like, is there a certain, like, is there a certain decibel level that you have to hit in order to, like, reach Sheol for somebody's soul to come up back into their body, right? Like, like for me, I have a tendency to think in terms of methodology, but can I remind you that the Bible does not record everything that Jesus did? Are we aware of this? In fact, at the end of the book of John, John says it this way. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, he says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, perhaps all the books in the world would not be able to actually hold what he did. So what we're saying is, is that when we see scripture and we see Jesus a few times go off to pray, can I probably remind you that those are a very, very few times that is recorded in the Bible out of an extreme amount that Jesus actually prayed to the Father. Because his disciples, what they saw in Jesus was that his miracles, his teachings, everything that he did was intrinsically linked to the fact that he had direct access to the Father. And so their question to him was not, Lord, teach us how to raise the dead. Lord, teach us how to heal the sick. Lord, teach us how to preach. No, their question was, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because everything else in the life of Jesus flowed from the relationship that he had with the Father. I got to tell somebody in the room, prayer is one of the primary disciplines of your life as a believer. Prayer is one of the primary disciplines of your life as a believer. Let me say it to you a different way. You cannot afford to not know how to pray. You can't afford to not know how to pray. The beauty of it is, this is not rocket science. Like you don't have to go to college for four years to figure out how to effectively pray. You don't need a doctorate in order to understand the theological treaties that actually, you know, that the, the, the Father now can hear your prayers. There doesn't, there doesn't have to be a doctor in front of your name to figure out how to talk to your father. In the same way that as a child, you didn't need an education to talk to your parents. You just talked to your parents. Does that make sense? Now again, sometimes I'm fascinated by this, but I think probably... More than, just, more than just the idea that it's, it's strange for me they didn't ask him more about methodology. It's that my context on this side of the cross is I have never known a time in which direct access to the Father wasn't possible. Let me, let, let me put it to you this way. When we look at the heroes of faith, I need to remind you that what you have, they didn't have. They didn't have direct access to the Father. It's not that they didn't pray, it's that they didn't expect God to talk back. They didn't have direct access. And people that did, if we look at guys like Moses, we look at guys like Elijah, they were looked at as special. Can I tell you what people that have direct access to the Father are called today? Christian. See, it's the very reason why John the Baptist, when Jesus is describing who John was, he said, of men born to women... There is not one person that is greater than John the Baptist. And yet from this day forward, he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Not because he hadn't done enough, but because he wasn't experiencing God on the other side of the cross. Now I've mentioned this in some sermons before, but it's something that I always want to keep in my own mind. 
How many of you have, like, there's an excitement in you that you want to meet one of your, like, biblical heroes? Like, I feel like the first, like, thousand years, if I can, like, think about time, there's going to be parts of me I'm going to be like, dude, I need to hang out with David. I need to talk to that guy, man. Like, there's some stuff. I need to ask him about Bathsheba and what that was all about, right? Like, I need to, I need, <laughs> what's going on there, guy? You know, like, but, like, I think about meeting Moses, and, and there's this thing in me that the Lord kind of, you know, gave this to me, like, a couple months ago, and he, there's, there's both a, an excitement and a trepidation that I have to meet Moses, because on one hand, I want to talk to Moses about his experiences, right? I want to be like, dude, what was it like, man? What was it like to see the burning bush? You know what I'm terrified of? The question where Moses asks me, what was it like to be the burning bush? What was it like to be the place that the presence of God resides? What was it like to be the consumed one who's not consumed? What was it like to be the walking, talking representation of the presence of God? Can I tell you why? Because Moses didn't have that. As incredible and, you know, and, and phenomenal as his ministry was, Moses never had God on the inside. Sometimes it boggles my mind that the disciples would ask, teach us to pray. But it's because Jesus was evidencing something that no other religious leader had ever evidenced in their time which was a prayer life that actually had authority, which was a relationship with God that wasn't just founded in our ability to exegete Scripture. His relationship with his Father was real, and what they saw was so attractive that no matter how many miracles Jesus performed, what they wanted from him was, we want what you have. The miracles are great. Free lunch is great. Raising the dead's great. All this stuff is great. How do we pray so we can have a relationship with God like you do? I want you to consider for a moment what we have been given through Christ is of immense value. Not just in terms of salvation. I think sometimes what we think is we think of what God has given us and we think of salvation. We think of repentance we think of regeneration. But can I tell you that one of the greatest aspects of what Jesus gave you is that he removed the veil between you and the Holy of Holies? Not just that he tore the veil, but that you became the Holy of Holies. You don't have to go to a temple, you became the temple. Friend, let me tell you, as much as I'm excited to go to Israel, I don't have to go to Israel. Okay, can I throw that out to you? I'm going I'm to say something that's going to mess you up. I don't have to go to the Holy Land because I am the Holy Land. Yeah. I am the Holy Land. I'm the place where God put his fingerprints. I'm the place where God resides. Yeah. I am the temple and so are you. The disciples understood that there was a direct correlation between the work of Jesus and the prayer life of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 17, if you don't know the story, Jesus, and I want I to quantify this by saying that previously to this story, Jesus has already sent out his disciples two by two. The Bible records that they went out into the highways and byways. They preached the gospel. They healed the sick. They cleansed lepers. They cast out demons. They were doing the work. 
They were doing the work. It's not like Jesus, like, in this particular moment in Matthew 17, this is like the first time they've ever tried to cast out a demon. This is probably, you know, we're, we're working on maybe 20 or 30 or maybe the 40th time they've tried to cast out a demon. All the other times it seems to have worked. But in Matthew 17, a man comes to Jesus and he says to him, Master, your, uh, your disciples tried to cast out this demon from my son and they failed. Can you do it? This demon keeps throwing him into the fire. He keeps casting him down. He keeps throwing him into the water. He's trying to kill him. Can you cast the demon out? And so Jesus then cast the demon out. His response to his disciples, because afterwards, can you imagine how embarrassing that must have felt? That like, how many of you guys have, have ever gone into something that you figured that you were probably equipped for and then you failed miserably? Like, I've got this, no problem. And then all of a sudden you get into it and you're like, I don't got this. This is a problem right? Imagine how the disciples feel. I mean, Severin, you know what I'm talking about. Like, when, when God really uses you, and you do something, like, you do something in the supernatural, you're like, I could definitely do this every time. I lay my hands on the sick every single time. Demonic possession, no problem, got you. Got authority. And then you come up with a time where you can't do it, and you're like, what about my methodology? What about the nine prayers that move heaven? What about the 15 phrases that create authority? What about the books that I read? And Jesus says to him this. He says two things. The first thing he says is, first of all, you lack faith. Secondly, this is the paraphrase, the Joel Eklund paraphrase. Secondly, this type only comes out with prayer and fasting. You know what we don't see in that passage of scripture? Jesus telling the man, I got to fast for a week. Give me a minute. I'll be right back. Which tells us, now somebody in the room is probably like, well, yeah, well, Pastor Joel, he's fully God. Yeah, but he was also fully man. Part of the point of the life of Jesus is not just to show us what God looks like on earth. It's also to look like, to show us what God looks like when he marries his divine nature with man to show us what's available through the power of the Holy Spirit. What he was saying was, this type only comes out when you've lived a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Now, there's nobody in the room, there's nobody in the room that cares about your financial state that wakes up tomorrow morning without having saved any money whatsoever and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out and buy a $70,000 truck. No money down. Zero money down. I am okay with a $1,000 a month payment on this truck. That the moment I drive it off the lot is going to depreciate by 25%. Not a single person in this room that cares about their finances would, would wake up tomorrow without an ego issue and do that. Why? Because you recognize that if you're going to get into something like that, you actually want to plan ahead for it, right? Some of us are fasting for something that's happening right now instead of fasting for something that we don't know about. We're not saving up anything. We're wondering why we lack power. We're wondering why we lack authority. And what I would tell you is it's probably because we're, we tend to pray and fast in response instead of praying and fasting as a lifestyle. See, the point is, if we go back to this, this, this idea that the disciples 
because they had gone out and every, it seemed like every single prayer they prayed came to pass. Every person they prayed for got free. Every person they prayed for got healed. What they were used to was instant gratification prayers. Listen, guys, can we be real honest? We live in a society that is absolutely obsessed with instant gratification. Obsessed. You know, I used to say it this way. I used to say that we live in a microwave culture, but we serve a crockpot God. The problem is, we're even, we're even obsessed with perfecting the crockpot. It's an Instapot now. It's like all of a sudden, instead of spending, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, you know, like getting rice, now I can have it in five minutes if I just put it in the Instapot, right? Like I can have, I can have pulled pork in 45 minutes now instead of eight hours. We can't even do a crockpot right anymore. Like, listen, man, like, I grew up in a really interesting time in history, okay? On one hand, like, I'm, I'm pretty well-versed in smartphones and, you know, all sorts of electronics, and yet at the same time, I still remember a time in which if I wanted to have privacy in a phone conversation, I had to take the phone off the wall with the giant cord, walk it down the hallway, and go into my room or a closet and hope that there wasn't somebody else that was being really sneaky, Drew, that was on the other line... It was on the other line, just like, you know, hitting the, you know, hitting the thing and just listening into this conversation. I remember, and some of you were there with me, I remember the heartache, the heartache, the force, the heartache of collecting those little cardboard things off of, off of cereal boxes for like months, years it felt like. And then when I go, when I go to send the thing in to get the twirly beanie thing with the battery in it, number one, it doesn't come with the battery. Number two, it takes six to eight weeks to ship. Like, man, I've spent most of my childhood just saving up, and now you're going to make me spend another two months waiting? But see, now Amazon's got all kinds of crazy stuff where, like, you order something, and they literally send it via drone to your house in an hour. And I'm just like, this isn't fast enough. Where's my transporter? I grew up on Star Trek, man. Get it here now. The problem is, is that how I view the world tends to correlate with how I view my God. And so my prayer life sometimes looks like, God, I've been praying for a whole two days. Pulled pork doesn't take this long. I've been praying for two months. If this was Amazon, I would have gotten six months free by now. Listen, I got to tell somebody, no matter how much our culture has changed, no matter how much the world has changed, God hasn't changed. We're going to have to learn to tarry again. Like, I, I really feel like, I didn't even say this in the first service, I feel like there's something on this right now for this, this, this particular service. I, friend, I got to tell you, we are going to have to learn to tarry again in God's presence. We're going to have to learn how to travail again in prayer. And not travail for a couple of months or maybe a you know, few weeks. I'm talking real travailing prayer. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But here's the big idea this morning. Intimacy increases authority. Intimacy increases authority. Now, before anybody gets a little weird about this, I do want to say. Increased authority is not the purpose of intimacy. I need you to hear that. Because for somebody who's desperate to have their prayers answered to whatever it is that you're trying to pray for. 
As a spouse, can I tell you, if I was to tell you that your marriage is only going to look good when your spouse wants something, like they're only going to talk to you or be intimate with you in any way, shape, or form when they actually want you to buy them this or they want you to do this for them, would that, would that feel like a healthy relationship to you? No. That would be a terrible relationship. And if that's what you're walking in, friend, get some marriage counseling. That's not good. That's, that, that's, not, a, that's not a covenant relationship. Like, to a degree, that's, I'm, I'm just going to say this, and I'm probably going to offend somebody. I'm sorry, I'm sorry if it feels this way, but that's a form of prostitution. We're not spiritual prostitutes. We are sons and daughters. We have a relationship with our father because we have a father, not because we're so excited about all the things our father can give us. Does that make sense? But on the other hand, I've got to tell you, in my relationship with my wife, when we are communicating really well, I don't have to ask her what she wants. I give her what I know she wants. When I'm, when I'm in, when I'm in great, greater aspects of communication with her, she doesn't have to like tell me her laundry list of stuff. Because I already know through these conversations and, and through, these, through these times of intimacy, I know what she's looking for. Which is exactly why Jesus, when he's, giving us the, when he's giving us the Lord's Prayer, says this. He says, listen, you don't have to just say a bunch of gibberish. God already knows what you need. So much of our prayer life, we are, we're desperate as though God doesn't actually know what's going on in our life. Friend, can I remind you? God knows what's going on in your life more than you do. Like, your external circumstances and how you feel internally is not actually the truth of your life. God actually knows better than you what's going on in your life. Which is why he doesn't require elaborate phrases like, God, if you're listening, remember when you promised me this? Remember when you said that? I'm hurting here, man. It's so funny because we are so much more spiritual than Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Jesus literally flat out says, don't worry about a great prayer. And we're like, whoa, hang on. I don't think that's true, sir. I need to pound on the doors of heaven, you know, in the most eloquent ways possible with the ten phrases that move God's heart. Can I tell you, he already gave you the five that move God's heart. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The implication of Scripture all throughout is that the more tuned in that you are to the will of God through prayer, the greater access to his authority you have. Listen to this. This is James 4. James 4, 2 to 3. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. I love that James answers a rhetorical question before he even asks someone. Then he says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Listen, my goal in prayer isn't to have all my prayers answered. My goal is to know him more. My goal is to understand his will for my life. Some of us have, got, have forgotten that prayer is an exercise not in figuring out the seven ways of getting prayers answered or the 15 effective ways that move, the phrases that move heaven. Prayer is an exercise of relationship. Listen, my kids ask me for things all the time. Any parent in the room, feel me. My kids ask me for things all the time. Can I be honest and say that I probably say no more than I say yes? 
Now, my son is in the room right now, so this is for him even though I'm not looking, I'm not looking at him right now. It's not because I'm a bad dad. It's actually because I know better for him, what's better for him than he knows for himself. Listen, I, I, could, I could give you a laundry list of things that I used to pray when I was in my late teens or my early 20s or my mid-20s or two weeks ago. <laughs> and I could, tell you, I could tell you that many of the things that I prayed for, I wasn't praying in the will of God. I was praying in my will. I was praying what I thought I wanted. Listen, man, I, I've mentioned this in, in times before, but I've got to tell somebody. I honestly think, and maybe I'm overstating this, but like, I honestly think that the no's that I've received from the Lord have been more important than the yeses that I've received from him. If I was to look back on the, on the story of my life with God, I could tell you that I am dumb. I mean, really, like, I'm kind of dumb. And the things that I've asked for, I realize now that I haven't gotten them and that God has given me something different. The things that I've asked for would have destroyed me long ago. Thank God he doesn't answer things outside of his will because he's good. He doesn't give me things that I think that I want. He gives me things that, I know, that he knows I need because he's a good father and not a bad one. See, the balance is knowing that when I'm in constant contact with the Father, I have access to his authority, while also understanding that that's not the point. God doesn't need to know my needs. I need to know his will. See, he doesn't lack understanding of my life. I do. He doesn't lack understanding of his own will. I do. You know, Elijah, we're, we're going to go here to, uh, to James chapter, uh, chapter 5. This is uh, starting in, in verse 16. It says, The prayer of a righteous man is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being, as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. I didn't say this in the first service, but I feel like somebody needs to hear that, that Elijah did not do this in his own authority. Elijah didn't wake up one morning as a prophet and say, You know what this land needs? Three and a half years of drought. Let's go. Make it happen, God. No, Elijah had relationship with God. God told him to prophesy drought. And so he prayed and prophesied drought. And drought happened. It didn't, it didn't, somebody needs to hear me. The drought didn't catch God by surprise. God wasn't like, whoa, what a prayer. Man, that was it. Let's do it, Elijah. That's crazy. I never had that thought before. Drought. Awesome. No. What he did was he said, Elijah, just like he told Ezekiel, what did he tell Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37? Prophesy to the bones. Ezekiel didn't tell God, hey, God, what do you think about me prophesying to the bones real quick? No, he commanded Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones and then he partnered with the prayer that Ezekiel prayed to raise the bones to life. See, this particular scripture is actually highlighting the fact that the effectiveness of the prayer that Elijah prayed was due both to his relationship with God and the fact that he was praying according to God's will. So how do we effectively pray? How many of you in here would like to have a more effective prayer life? I mean, I would. I'm going to give you three points this morning, and then we're going to close up. Number one is this. Pray God's will. 
Pray God's will. Now, this probably seems like a really duh statement. Like, of course you should pray God's will. How many of you realize there have been times in your life where you have absolutely prayed your will and just asked God to put his stamp of approval on it? Like, you know, like kind of like a bank, you know, like a bank loan, like where like you see those movies where it's like, you know, like denied or, you know, accepted. Like, that's what you're looking for. You're saying, God, here's my application for my will. Feel like my credit's pretty good. Can you just hit the accept button? We have a tendency to demand what we believe is in God's plans for us. And then we wonder why it's not happening. I'm going to say that one again because that, that seemed like it hit a little hard. We have a tendency to effectively demand what we believe is in God's plans for us and then wonder why it's not happening. And then we blame God as though God doesn't actually understand what's best for my life. You don't know what you want. I'm going to say it over. You don't know what you want. Do you have an idea? You're like, yeah, I do, Pastor Joel. Okay, maybe I'll say it this way. What you want for you is terrible. Say it over here. What you want for you is terrible. Left to your own devices, we would ask for all the sorts of things that we know kill us. Because that is in our nature. It's in our nature to be self-destructive. Which is why our goal should not be, Lord, give me A, B, C, D. Our goal should be, Lord, reveal your will for my life so I can pray in that direction. Reveal your will to me so that I can actually walk in it. I have to be reminded that the second line of the Lord's Prayer is, your will be done. Not mine, not my vision for the world, not by my vision for, you know, how things are going to shape, not, the, not, not my vision for my own life, not my vision for my kids, your will. See, we like that your kingdom come part was like, yes, kingdom of God. But then that second line hits and we're like, whoa, hang on. I have very definitive ideas about how to build this house. No, it's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? It's because my will is imperfect. Listen, friend, your desires are flawed even as they are being refined. Like, you're a, you're a lot better than you used to be, but you're not yet where you're going to be. Until that time, there are things about yourself that you cannot trust. It's okay to know that. There are things about your life, things about the way that your mind works that you can't trust, which is why we have scripture, we have community, we have prophecy, we have our relationship with God, because there are things about us that we realize have to be shaped by the word of God and by the church of God. I want to take you to 1 Kings chapter 3. This is, this is the story of Solomon. For those of you who know the story You'll get it, but for those of you who don't, I'm just going to give you a really brief backstory here. So Solomon is the son of David. He, uh, he ascended to his father's throne after David's death. And after his ascension, the Lord came to him in a dream and said, Solomon, because of, because of the faithfulness of your father David, ask me and I will give you anything you want. 
Talk, first of all, that's a, dangerous, that's a dangerous ask right there. Like if God told me that he would give me anything I want, I'd have to pray about that. I'd be like, okay, give me a minute, man. This is like the world's largest lottery ticket right here that I know is going to be a W, okay? But like he comes to him and he says, I'm going to give you anything that you want because of the faithfulness of your father. Solomon responded and said, Lord, I'm young and I'm inexperienced. And these people, these people are, 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 are incredible. They're your people. I don't know how to lead them. So give me a heart of wisdom so that I can effectively lead your people. I want you to imagine for a moment, this is probably a 16-year-old. Solomon was not a, an older guy. He was a very young man. And at 16 years old, possibly, his response to the Lord, I mean, come on, 16-year-olds in the room, if God told you, I will give you anything you want, What's your thought? Like, you know, PS5s are like $1,000 right now. <laughs> but if God told you, if God said to you, he said, Izzy, I'm going to give you whatever you want. Like, I mean, most of us, like, I want to consider, most people wouldn't have answered the way that Solomon did. Like, I'd have to really think about that before I answered, right? And this is what God's response to Solomon is. He says, now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, Because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked for discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you asked. I'll give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. Listen to this next part. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and command, just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. This is what we call an effective prayer. An effective prayer is a prayer that gets answered by the Lord that comes with other answers too. The problem is, is that if Solomon had asked for long life, if he'd asked for wealth, and asked for the death of his enemies, but hadn't asked for wisdom, he would have crushed himself under the weight of the first three things. Because the first thing, wisdom, is the foundation upon which everything else can be happily enjoyed. And in fact, the other problem, ultimately what we see the problem with Solomon was, is that despite the fact that he had, he had wisdom, later on in his life, he left wisdom. And all of those things that God gave him, because he rejected his own wisdom, crushed him. I got to remind somebody in the room that if our, if our prayer to the Lord is not, God, give me your mind, Lord, I want to I I be able to walk in the mind of Christ. I want to be able to walk in the will of God. If God gave you all the other things that you're praying for, you would be crushed under the weight of them. Because without the foundational peace, all of that other stuff owns you. I'm going to tell somebody in the room something that is probably like a duh point, okay? God doesn't care if you have money. He cares if money has you. Like sometimes we struggle with this, this, this idea between the poverty gospel or the prosperity gospel. What I would remind you is that God is not, is, is not worried whether you're prosperous or, or, or living in poverty. His issue is whether it's become an idolatry either way. Because we can idolize poverty in the same way that we can idolize prosperity, We can decide that because we are living in poverty, we are more spiritual. 
Or we can decide that because we're living in prosperity, that means God's blessing us. Actually, if that's your outlook on either one of those things, you probably have idolized one of the other. What Solomon asked for was effectively a servant's prayer. He said, Lord, I'm a king. Make me a servant. Somebody needs to understand that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. If you want to go up the ladder, you have to go down the ladder. And Jesus said it this way. He said, he said amongst the Gentiles, your leaders lord it over you. It's not to be so among you. If anyone wishes to be great, he has to be the servant of all. That's effectively the prayer that, that Solomon prayed here. He could have asked for honor for himself, and God would have given it to him because he promised, I'll give you whatever you ask. But instead, he said, Lord, give me the honor of a servant. And because he asked for that, he received all of the other things that he didn't ask for too. The Lord's Prayer includes five separate prayer points. I got to tell somebody in the room that only one of them is about personal provision. There are four others that are asking that God's will be supreme, or they're actually about you, but in relationship to others. For example, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. We like that first part. We're like, yes, forgive me, O oh God, because I'm a sinner. The second one is really, really difficult because what it says is, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have debts against us. Which means that if you want the result of the first one, you have to be practicing the second one. And that's really tough because, to be quite honest, there's a lot of people that live in trauma. There's a lot of people that have had real things happen to them. And the truth is, is that... One of the most offensive things that I can say that's also a biblical truth is that you cannot control what happens to you, but you can control your response to it. Sometimes what we're looking for is we're looking for the result of forgiveness without repentance. What I'm saying is, is that we like the idea that God forgives us, but the moment that it, that it, that it flips on its head and all of a sudden we have to forgive others, we're like, whoa, you don't know what they did. No, friend, I don't. But what I can tell you is that's, that's not what, our, what, what the scriptures tell us. It says that if you want to be healed, you have to forgive. Listen, I, I just got to tell somebody in the room, you don't have to be bitter anymore. You don't have to live in that. You really don't. And I can tell you the way out of that poison well is forgiveness. It's why Jesus actually, I mean, if, if we were to take very seriously that the Lord's Prayer is to be prayed every day, which it is, by the way. I'm going to say something here just really briefly. Sometimes in our, in our effort to be not Catholic, we have robbed ourselves of things that Catholic people do. Because we're like, whoa, that's pretty Catholic. Well, saying the Lord's Prayer every day, dude, that's really Catholic. No, it's Christian. You are not more spiritual than Jesus. If Jesus told you to do it, like, this is an easy command. 
Like, he didn't tell you to, you know, stop looking at pornography. Well, okay, he did tell you to stop looking at pornography, but this, you know what I'm saying. Like, he didn't, he, this, is not a, this is not a difficult one. If we can't do this one, how are we going to do the other ones? Right? But here's the thing, is that if we are praying this every day, then our minds should be on forgiveness, both for ourselves and for others at the same time, every single day. Sometimes what we do is we live in bitterness for so long, we don't want to think about those people and what they did and, you know, how they wronged us and how they harmed us and all this kind of stuff. But actually... What this prayer does for us is it forces us to sit in that moment and say, yes, that happened to you. What are you going to do about it? Because you don't have to keep sitting here in this well. Number two, pray faithfully. Hebrews 11, 32 to 39. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, come on somebody, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That was awesome. Now listen to the next part. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Oh, good Lord. They wandered in deserts. Boy, these guys' prayer lives must have been rough. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Listen, but all these were approved. Your suffering is not God's disapproval. Sometimes it's God's will. We have a terrible, terrible theological understanding of suffering. It's why in the West we have such a hard time dealing with it. And why if we don't grab hold of it, we'll never understand our brothers and sisters all over the world that are part of the most persecuted group on the face of the earth. But I got to tell you, it's not because their prayer life is bad. It's because they're approved. All these were proved through their faith. I'm going to understand this. Both spectrums. They were approved for their victories. And they were approved for their suffering. One doesn't make you better than the other. If you're in a place of suffering and you're suffering for the cause of the kingdom, you're approved. If you're in a place where it seems like everything's going your way, you're approved. And don't, don't feel like just because you used to be on this end of the spectrum and now you're kind of over on this end of the spectrum that that automatically means you did something wrong. Because what this particular passage of scripture tells me is that whether you're here or here, there's the approval of God on it. If you're doing what he's called you to do and you're living in victory, you're approved. If you're doing what he's called you to do and you're living in suffering, you're approved. But they did, listen to this, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Some of us grow frustrated by what we perceive as God's lack of movement or his slowness. Man, can you imagine being one of the heroes of faith? That, yeah, I mean, they were doing what God called them to do, but ultimately what they were really praying for was the ultimate salvation of Israel. With the full knowledge, they weren't going to see it. What if I told you that some of the things that God has put on your heart to pray for, you won't see? Can I tell you that revival is not the result of just like, boom, God decided to wake up one day? Most of the time what you see is that revival is fueled by prayer movements. 
It's fueled by people who say, I want to see God move no matter what, no matter how long it takes. Back in the 1700s, this is right after the period of the Enlightenment, Christianity had largely become more of a philosophy than a religion. Most everything that was preached from pulpits in that time, both in Catholic churches and in evangelical, well, not evangelical, but Protestant churches, was all tinged with the perspective of the Enlightenment. It was all about the philosophy of Jesus. And if you did these things, then you'll become enlightened. Around the same time, there was a man named Count Nicholas Zinzendorf who became so ill-content with the idea of a philosophical religion that he actually founded his own community of believers that was focused around the presence of God and prayer. For almost a hundred years, even after Zinzendorf's death, this particular community continued in prayer and in fasting and in community. And I can tell you that every single revival that we have seen from the first great awakening all the way to the Jesus people movement has found its roots in what Zinzendorf did in the early 1700s. Because he was not content with the idea that we can talk about Jesus without experiencing Jesus. He wasn't content with the notion that if we just come to church and hear a good message, that that's enough for us. That if we just change our mentality or change our thinking, that's going to change the world. The first missionaries that actually came out and began to, 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 to sow revival all across the globe came out of that prayer movement. In fact, there were two men who they met, they met a freed slave from the Caribbean. And they were so... They were so overwhelmed by the presence of God when he gave them his testimony about what it felt like to be a slave, that they sold themselves into slavery in order to go preach the gospel to the slaves. And when their families were waiting on the shores and they're like, what are you idiots doing? You're selling yourself into slavery. Their response was, worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. They literally didn't love their lives even unto death because they weren't content with philosophy. Zinzendorf died never really seeing the full effect of everything that his movement produced. The point is, we have become so set on instant gratification that we forget that sometimes prayer goes beyond your life. You're not wasting your time. You're storing it up. God isn't, there's no, friend, I got to tell you, there is no prayer that you have ever prayed that has been wasted. Everything that you have prayed for your families, everything you've prayed for your nation, everything that you've prayed for revival, everything that you've prayed for your region, nothing is wasted. Everything is stored. It is stored up. Can I encourage you on something, church? Keep praying. Don't get caught up in an instapot culture. Don't get caught up in a microwave mentality. Remind yourself that there were people before you that prayed for the very thing that you're experiencing right now. I need somebody to hear this. The breakthrough that many of you have experienced in the last couple years, I'm telling you, that, and I'm not just saying that this is the result of your grandma's prayers. It probably is the result of your grandma's prayers. But... What I want to remind you is, is that people have been praying that God would move in this kind of way throughout the earth again for a hundred years. A hundred years. Many of the people that believed for a great Northwest revival 
are long dead now. Keep praying. It's not wasted time. It's saved. It's stored. Number three. Number three. Just pray, man. Dude, listen. For whatever reason, we are obsessed with the idea that God wants the best prayer or like the best song. And we think to ourselves, oh man, Pastor Joel, like... Oh, man, I, I, I hear, you know, I, I hear Forrest pray, and I'm just like, sheesh, man, that dude can pray. And I'm just like so intimidated by praying because I hear all these people that are really good at praying. Listen, the truth is, is that God wants an authentic heart, not a polished discourse. Man, I tell you, my, I heard my, my little girl, um, the other day we were, we were driving, and, and she started singing a song to the Lord and it wasn't it wasn't a song that was on the stereo or anything it was just a song that was in her heart you know what I didn't do I didn't say to myself wow that chorus is really off hey missed that note there sis no because as a father I, I don't care if she writes best like you know like a number one hit I care that she loves Jesus. I care that what's in her heart is pure. I care that what's in her heart is authentic. She loves the Lord. I, I was so wrecked by hearing her sing that song that I was reminded. Sometimes, I, I mean, can, can I be really transparent with you guys? I, I struggle with this sometimes too. Like I write songs and, you know, and, and I write things to the Lord and, and I, can, I convince myself nobody wants to hear this. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to hear that or this or nobody needs to see that. And, and what it, you know, as I was listening to my daughter just, you know, sing this really pure song to the Lord, I was reminded, you know, that's how God views me. He doesn't, he doesn't require me to give him something that is polished and pure and perfect. And if it's not exactly like what I think it should be, he tosses it out because it's worthless. Friend, I got to tell you that Jesus goes after the idea that we have to be really good at prayer in Matthew chapter 6. He says, listen, you don't have to say all these crazy things. You don't have to say, you know, the, 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 the prayer in the absolute best way. It doesn't have to be a performance. You don't have to pray, you know, to me nonstop, you know, with, without repeating anything, you know, for 25 minutes or else it's not real prayer. He literally says, listen, you don't have to be like the hypocrites. Don't worry about that. You don't have to be like the Gentiles. God isn't worried about how many words you speak. What God, is, what God is looking for is a surrendered heart. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for authenticity. He's looking for a people that want him and nothing else. He's looking for a people that say, I want God. I want to converse with him. I want his will for my life. And whether that looks like me praying the Lord's Prayer five times or whether that looks like me praying for 35 or 40 minutes about this, this, and this, I want the Lord. That's what I want. For every guy in the room that is struggling with your prayer life because you're like, oh, I'm just not good at this, Pastor Joel. Listen, you were terrible the first time that you picked up a girl too, but here you are. See, because when something's worthwhile, you get better at it and you practice it. Like, my point is, you know, when we're talking to God, you're not picking up a chick, right? Just calm down, all right? My point is, my point is this. Listen, what Jesus has given us is access to the greatest relationship you'll ever experience significantly better than one with your spouse if I might, if I might add 
it is worth it to go after the Lord. Even if you feel like, oh man, I said that really weird. I don't know if my theology's on base here. Man, just start somewhere. Sometimes what we think is we're like, we're like, oh man, well, Pastor Joel, I don't know where to start. Dude, it's literally right here. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the authority forever and ever. Amen. That's literally what Jesus said. Hey, here's a good start. Here's a good model. If you're struggling to pray, pray that. Because that's literally what Jesus told you to pray. Does that make sense? You don't have to overcomplicate it. God wants to hear your voice. And he even gave you an easy model to work with. Psalm 109, verse 4. Listen to this. This is, and this is, where, I'm, this is where I'm closing. It says, though I love them, they stand accusing me. This is, by the way, this is, uh, this is the psalmist. This is David. And he says, though I love them, they stand accusing me like Satan for what I've never done. Listen to this last part. I will pray until I become prayer itself. I will pray until I become prayer itself. As we're closing, I want to remind you not just to pray, but to become your prayer. Don't be content to pray for God's will to heal. Become God's will to heal. You know, in the same way, what I mean by that is it's very, it's very easy for us to say, Lord, heal the sick. It's a little more difficult to say, Lord, thank you that you are using me to heal the sick. I need someone in the room to understand that you are in partnership with God for nearly everything that he does on earth. Which means that if you want to see people healed, you actually have to put yourself in a position to pray for the sick so that God through you will heal the sick. It's, it's why Jesus is telling his disciples, he didn't say to them, guys, listen, when I go, things are going to get really weird. There's not going to be much power left. And you just pray for the sovereignty of God over every situation. No, he said, listen, greater works than these will you do. These signs will follow those who believe. In the same way that Jesus, when he's, he's, he's seeing a whole group of people streaming out of a city towards him, he says, you know, you say that the harvest is four months away. I say, look up. The fields are wide in the world. Pray then that the Lord of the harvest will send more workers into the field. Do we love that prayer? We're like, God, send somebody else. Woo! Send more workers. I can feel them. But in the next chapter, he sends out the 72 by 2. If you're going to pray the prayer, you better become the prayer. See, if I'm going to pray that your, the, 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 our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm not just praying that as a hope. I'm praying that because I'm going to become the will of God in the earth. I'm not just saying, Lord, sovereignly do whatever it is you want to do. God, listen, somebody needs to know God is going to sovereignly do whatever he wants to do, whether you ask him to do it sovereignly or not. But I got to tell you that until I became the prayer that I was praying, I didn't see the breakthrough that I was looking for. Until I started praying the prayer that God, I don't just want to 
throw this out there into the heavenlies. I want you to use me to see your kingdom advance here. I don't just want to be a mouthpiece. I want to be the feet of Jesus. I don't want to just be somebody praying something out into the nethers. I want you, through this prayer, to use me to do whatever you want to do in this community. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. If you're going to pray it, you better become it. Don't just pray that God give you a greater desire for him. Pray it and then live it. Don't just pray that God would heal the sick. Pray it, then be faithful to pray for the sick. Don't just pray that God would reach your family member. Pray it and then be reaching out to others. Don't just pray for the mind of Christ. Believe that God is giving it to you. Listen. Effective prayer is like very simple. What is the will of God? What is the will of God for your life? Pray that. If you don't know what that is, here's the thing. God wants to tell you what his will is for your life. It's just that most of us don't want to hear it. Because we already have a will for our own lives. We've already got a vision for our own selves. So what I want to tell you is, the vision and will for God that, that God has for your life is not difficult to obtain. You just actually have to want it. Come on, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you today. I thank you today that your will for us is not a mystery. That your will for us is not hard to obtain. And that prayer is not difficult. It just takes some time. It takes determination. And God, I pray that this morning over every person here in the house that we would be a people determined to be effective in prayer. Not as though... We're, we're, we're using tally points to figure out which things got answered and which things didn't. But the effectiveness of our prayer stems from the fact that tomorrow when we pray, we're going to know you more. That the next day when we pray, we're going to know you even more. That the next day after that, we're going to pray, we're going to know your will for us. The next day after that, we're going to know it even more because we are determined to know you. And God, I pray this morning. I pray this morning over each person a blessing this week. We're so grateful for everything that you're doing. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.